Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I am joined on this sunny Thursday evening by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing? I'm having my ass kicked by this pollen. I'm all puffy and horrible, so apologies for what hopefully won't be a disgusting show of me sniffling constantly. Um, but yeah, I'm so weak in the face of this, this, this pollen attack. Well, it's better than having your ass kicked by a huge cloud of smog, which is what New Yorkers are currently facing. We will be talking about that tonight on tonight's show. And we'll also be discussing Caroline Lucas. She's going to be stepping down as an MP at the next election. And Julia Hartley Brewer having a freak out about a little health warning because it's going to be hot. Um, I don't know why she cares as much as she does, but it's an interesting phenomenon on the right, which we will be talking about. First story. After telling millennials for years that they just need to stop buying avocados and coffee if they want to buy their own home, the Daily and Sunday Telegraph are being put up for sale. That's because despite insisting that anyone under 50 can't save money, the owners of those titles are broke. The Barclay brothers started out running a confectionery store and tobacconist in Kensington. After that went bankrupt, they turned to real estate. Soon, they branched into breweries and casinos, finally buying London's Ritz Hotel in 1995. In 2004, they purchased the Telegraph Media Group, which included the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs. And in 2008, they added the Spectator to the fold. Long accused of tax avoidance by 2020, their wealth was estimated to be £7 billion. In 2021, David Barclay died with his sons Aidan and Howard taking his share of the papers. But let's go back to that purchase of the Telegraph Group. At the time, it cost £665 million, and the brothers turned to bank loans to get the cash. And there's an obvious risk with buying something with millions of pounds in loans. That's because if it turns out to be worth less than you bought it for, you might find yourself under a lot of financial pressure. And that appears to be what happened in this instance. One of the first warning signs was in 2019, when Frederick Barclay sought a buyer for the media group, and bids came in at around £200 million. Pounds. That's less than a third of the price they originally paid. But for Frederick, it got worse because he's now also on the line for a £100 million divorce settlement. Frederick is now two years overdue for that payment, which appears to have been the catalyst for their bank manager to call in their loans. So time is up for the Barclays' ownership of the Telegraph Group. And it's important to say, though, that the Telegraph Media Group is itself profitable, as is the Spectator. And these titles are being sold because the Barclays have failed to pay off extraordinarily large debts rather than the titles themselves losing money. The Financial Times reports this. In the year ending January the 2nd, TMG, so that's Telegraph Media Group, reported sales of £240 million, up from £235 million, and a pre-tax profit of £29 million compared with £22 million the previous year. A spokesman for the Barclays said, quote, The businesses within our portfolio continue to trade strongly, are run by independent management teams, are well capitalised with minimal debt and strong liquidity. They have no liability for any holding company liabilities, continue to operate as normal and are unaffected by issues in the holding company structure above them. So the paper is a viable business for whoever can afford to buy it. Of course, owning a newspaper, especially a right-wing one, is always appealing to certain members of the ultra-rich. Whether it's Lebedev at the Evening Standard or Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post, the claim is that in buying these papers, the ultra-rich can gain political influence to match their economic wealth. And with a general election just around the corner, it's no surprise that potential buyers for the media group include, according to the Financial Times, wealth funds from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE. 
UAE. Given the spectators' penchant for saying that Muslims want to impose Sharia law on the rest of the UK, it would also be a little bit ironic if the magazine was bought by the Saudi government, an authoritarian state which has, you guessed it, Sharia law. When these publications passionately defend free speech, will they dare to mention Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was murdered by Saudi goons in their Istanbul embassy just a few years ago? One suspects not. And there is, of course, the fact that the Barclay family are up to their eyeballs in debt, with the FT reporting it to be £1 billion higher than previously thought. Their publications have been attacking benefit scroungers and workshy youngsters as people who just don't work hard enough to get on the property ladder or manage their money. And yet, they were living on the never-never. Dahlia, um, should Navara start a crowdfunder to buy the Telegraph Media Group? And could we give you a column in The Spectator? You, or like Navara, buying, you know, the, a company that owns several newspapers, several influential newspapers um, in this country, and like handing out columns to your mates. And, you know, even though not every single article, obviously, is going to be kind of handpicked or cherry-picked by the owner, still, you're exerting a huge amount of influence because you can basically determine the range of people and opinions that are expressed within you know, within the newspapers that you own. But that kind of like giving out columns to your mates and that kind of very re like restrictive and narrow model of ownership uh, of multiple different media outlets is not actually that far off from what actually, how the UK media is actually run. You know, this is like, we have like three companies in this country own 90% of the newspaper media. And when you, even though you might say, okay, well, online, you know, online media, that changes it. It's not all newspapers. That means you have more pluralism. Well, that number only falls to 80% in terms of the market share of those three companies. So online media is 80% is controlled by the same three companies. And you've got to think about what that does to media plurality. We're not being entirely... I'm sincere when we consider that Navarra Media could buy the Telegraph because I don't think, however, however, however much we promote a crowdfunder, it's unlikely we'll get circa two hundred million pounds in our coffers, and that does beg the question or lead to the question: who will buy it? And it is interesting that the Financial Times are sort of saying that the potentials here are wealth funds from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from the Emirates, and I say that because you know we know these are the the people who have just a lot of cash they can sink on these kind of things. We see that with football teams. But with football teams, obviously this is oil money, with football teams, um, people say that, yeah, that's maybe sports washing those regimes, but you can't, you know, dictate the editorial line of a football team. They just play football. But if you have oil-rich countries whose wealth is based on exporting oil, owning newspapers, then that would seem somewhat worrying, especially in terms of combating climate change. Um, Dahlia, how worried would you be if, if the Saudis or the Qataris or the Emiratis bought the Telegraph Media Group? Sometimes the differences between different oligarchs of different countries are sometimes overblown. Like, sure, there's the particular angle of us being in a climate crisis and, you know, Saudi Arabia being a petro state. And so there's a very clear and definable conflict of interest there that can be, is quite neat in that sense. But ultimately, the problem is power concentration. You know, the, the problem is that it is possible for one entity, which 
by nature of how wealth is accumulated under capitalism, will be an entity that is likely invested and is, you know, has their hand in some really, really heinous stuff that profits off violence, that profits off, profits off extraction, that they will be in control of a huge share of our media. And whether it's the arms industry, whether it's the oil industry, for me, I think sometimes the differences are kind of a bit overblown, you know, beyond the kind of the, the oil connection, which I think is something that does need to be pointed out and does need to be, um, does need to, is a cause for concern. But ultimately, the problem is the structure by which, you know, a small number of billionaires, a small number of wealthy people who will gain, who will inevitably have their wealth extracted from corrupt, violent means that are are tan- that are completely oppositional to you know the the interests of everyday people that they have inevitably will be the ones who control the largest share of our media and that will have knock on impacts on the rest of us and i think that that's what's so specific about the landscape here um compared to somewhere like you know to compare to say europe media concentration ownership of media is a problem everywhere but the UK is kind of unique, um, uniquely bad in how concentrated that media power is. You know, 90% owning, and, and let's not forget, that's only gotten worse. You know, in 2015, that number was 70% in terms of the market share of newspapers owned by three companies. It's gone up to 90%. That is an alarming figure. That, to me, is the problem. Of course, some oligarch whose interest is completely misaligned with the rest of us and oppositional to the rest of us is going to own it. That's the nature of capitalism. I agree with you in large part on the billionaire issue. I think whatever billionaire buys the Telegraph or whatever billionaire buys whatever you know media channel or newspaper, that is going to be a barrier to them talking about taxing the rich or proper redistribution. I, I, I think probably when it comes to a bunch of issues, though, climate change probably being the most significant one, it does make a bit of a difference. I think it matters that, that Murdoch is a different kind of billionaire to Bezos. And that if, you know, the, the, if Bezos were to buy Fox News, then probably it would be slightly less catastrophic for the climate than Rupert Murdoch owning it. Obviously, Bill Gates buying it would be slightly different. But this is not a sign of a healthy democracy where we're saying, which billionaire would I prefer to control the media? Next story. Right now, New York looks like this. Smoke has engulfed the city, plunging it into a dystopian scene straight out of Blade Runner. By Wednesday afternoon, the city had become one of the most polluted in the world. Planes were grounded, schools were shut, and Broadway shows were cancelled. So, why is this happening? The smoke suffocating the area has been caused by Canadian wildfires. It began to flow south across the border on Tuesday, worsening over the following 48 hours. And it hasn't only blanketed New York, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. have all been affected. The smoke has even traveled as far south as Alabama. That's around 2,500 kilometers away from the fires. Once the smog arrived, it didn't take long for New York to disappear in the haze. This time-lapse video from the city's National Weather Service shows it vanishing in just a few hours. You can hardly make out um, Manhattan. New York City authorities have called the smog a, quote, unprecedented event, while the air quality has been rated hazardous. As a result, New Yorkers have been encouraged to wear masks outside, with the New York state governor making a million N95 masks available to residents. Pedestrians have complained of a strong cigar-like smell everywhere. Pensioners' children and those with respiratory conditions have been told to stay indoors for the sake of their health. 
This graph from the New York Times shows just how toxic the air has become. At the smoke's peak on Wednesday, sensors measured 868 micrograms of particle pollution per cubic meter of air. That's 10 times higher than the previous New York record set in 2003. And it's nearly twice as high as the record set by the 2020 wildfires in Oregon. For context, good air quality is defined at just 12 micrograms per cubic meter. The wildfires causing the smog are blazing in Canada's eastern provinces of Quebec and Ontario. It's not usual for these forests to go alight because they tend to be wetter during the summer months than their more western counterparts where wildfires are common. So far, more than 9 million acres of land have been burned and 20,000 people have been evacuated. The cause of the fires is the exceptionally hot and dry spring eastern Canada has been experiencing this year. Temperatures have reached highs of 33 degrees Celsius, about 10 degrees higher than normal. And emissions from Canada wildfires in May reached 54.8 million tonnes. That's more than double past records for the month since records began in 2003. As this BBC graphic shows, Canada is on track to have its worst year ever for wildfires. It's only June, and yet nearly 3 million hectares have burned. That's two-thirds of the area burned when the last record was set in 2014. So is climate change to blame? According to the UN Environment Report released last year, the number of extreme wildfires will jump 14% by 2030 and 30% by 2050. The report's authors say we must, quote, learn to live with fire. And New York Mayor Eric Adams agrees. Well, this may be the first time we've experienced something like this on this magnitude. Let's be clear. It is not the last. Climate change is accelerating these conditions. And we must continue to draw down emissions, improve air quality, and build resiliency. New York City is clearly a national leader on public health and climate action. And these dangerous air quality conditions are clearly an urgent reminder that we must act now to protect our city, our environment, and the future of our children. Dahlia, you're struggling with pollen today. I know New Yorkers are struggling with smog. This is going to become an ever more common phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this isn't the first time a wildfire has happened, you know, in, in certain parts of the world. They are more prone to this. But what climate breakdown does is it not only means that the number of extreme weather events increases and intensifies, but by virtue of that, it expands the geographical boundary that are hit by extreme weather events. And these are often places that are not used to or do not have the infrastructure or the mitigation abilities to deal with those extreme weather events. So that's why, you know, the scenes in New York have hit so many people is because we aren't used to seeing New York like that because we aren't used to seeing a place like New York, you know, this heavily urbanized area, uh, impacted this severely by a wildfire happening so far away. And this is ultimately why climate breakdown is such a unique urgency, because what it really exposes is the fact that not only are we all impa- are we impacted by things that might be happening very far away and you know we are all kind of interconnected by the way that you know extreme weather events and you know impacts on agriculture will that take place you know halfway across the world can have severe impacts um, on people that are very disconnected from that space 
but also that the impacts of climate breakdown are unpredictable. You know, this is the point. I think there's this kind of techno solutionist idea often that, you know, okay, well, we can continue as we are. And as long as we just keep developing and we keep innovating, eventually we will develop the technologies that will enable us to mitigate the impacts of climate breakdown or to reverse climate breakdown. Even some of the most sort of sci-fi stuff out there kind of goes down that direction. But the point is, is that the impacts are unstable and unpredictable. This is planetary destabilization. And so this is what is really quite scary and quite and what makes climate breakdown a unique existential threat um and is why you know this kind of you know like techno solutionist predictive you know you can't deal with planetary destabilization through like predictive um technologies um but i think that that phrase you know we need to learn to live with fire is such an ominous disturbing but also probably true statement and we need to understand that the impacts of that are so far reaching because when we say we need to learn to live with fire different people have different abilities to do that and we know exactly who is going to be left out from that take what's been happening in new york all you know the, the advice was if you have respiratory issues if you're a child if you're a pensioner if you're vulnerable in any way stay inside wear masks what does that do for the growing unhoused population in New York City who can't go inside, who can't seek refuge? We saw the same thing in the COVID pandemic. When these crises hit, the people on the sharp end, the people who can't learn to live with fire because they don't have the means, the means to do so has been taken from them. Those are the people that are really going to experience the sharp edge of this. And there's something quite disturbing about the fact that even the UN is beginning to kind of accept that that's where we are right now. Um, but yeah, I think that that's what this, it's quite a clarifying moment, seeing those scenes in New York particularly, because we're not used to seeing that in New York, but this will become increasingly um, increasingly common uh, as has been predicted for decades and that we have, you know, oil companies have prevented us from being able to take the necessary action to stop us from getting in this situation in the first place. I want to talk about the politics of this and what effect this this smog might have on the politics of climate in the United States. And um, first, though, because we like to be balanced on this channel, um, I thought I'd bring you what some right-wing Americans think about the wildfire smoke. This is from Fox News. The air is ugly, it's unpleasant to breathe, and for a lot of people, they get uh, anxiety over it. But the reality is there's no health risk. Okay, there's uh, EPA research. They've done lots of clinical research on uh, asthmatics, on elderly asthmatics, on children, on elderly with heart disease. Um, not a cough or a wheeze from any of them. We have this kind of air in India and China all the time. Um, no public health emergency. Speaking of, do you, do you notice like in all the coverage of, you know, Bill Ware, the tailpipes, all this stuff? They never, ever mentioned the fact at the top that China is the number one polluter in the world. Never. Yeah, this is like clean air in China. I mean, it's really bad. Uh, you know, they, in the winter, they never turn on their scrubbers for the air pollution because they don't care. Weir has no idea what he's talking about. This doesn't kill anybody. This doesn't make anybody cough. This is not a health event. This has got nothing to do with climate. First off, these, this is wildfire smoke. This is natural. This is not because of climate change. <laughs> it's not amazing. because of a fossil fuel, you know, uh, internal combustion engines. He just has no idea what he's talking about. Um, all day, by the way, it seemed like the media figures that we've become accustomed to seeing on television during these crises, 
they seemed like they were back in their element and, and kind of um, almost enjoying the moment of wearing masks, masks again, <laughs> didn't they? They seemed to have a little pep in their step with those masks. Dahlia, um, I suppose my question to you, so one of the real fears I used to have with climate change was that it wouldn't really affect the West that much. So, you know, there are models that say that actually it could make parts of Europe more um, productive agriculturally because the climate gets a little bit warmer and that won't be a bad thing when it comes to sort of crop yields. So my worry was that it, w it wouldn't be a big problem for the rich world, but it would be a huge problem for the poor world and we'd be able to just ignore it, essentially. That means that, you know, every time you get one of these events in the rich West, I'm almost sort of like, well, kind of thank God the people who are producing the carbon are now going to realize they need to cut it. But then you see um, some of the commentary from the United States when it's their cities being cloaked in smog. And they just say, oh, there's nothing wrong with smog, actually. You know, they have more smog in India. Well, this is a, a David Wallace-Wells piece recently. He said 10 million people a year die from poor air quality. So, so the idea that this is happening and we just live with it, so, you know, it's, this, the, the goalposts are constantly shifting. First of all, they would have said, no, it's ridiculous that New York would be covered in smog. Then New York is covered in smog. They say, well, who cares about smog? What's the problem with smog? I mean, what do you make of it? It's important to remember that the reason that, I think that's Laura Ingram, the reason that she's able to chuckle and laugh and feel so comfortable about this whole thing is because, yes, this is impacting the West in the way that perhaps, you know, we always knew it was going to impact the West because ultimately, you know, this is, it's planetary, right? So it's, even if it doesn't impact us in a way that like is visible in this place here, what's happening agriculturally, you know, the fact that there are droughts in Spain where we import so much of our food, that's going to impact us here. Um, but I understand, you know, you'd think that this sort of very visible representation of environmental collapse and this very immediate thing of like not being able to breathe in healthy air, um, you would think that that would have an impact. But the fact is, is that when it does hit the global north, when it does hit countries like the US, like, you know, um, Britain, it will impact the people who will suffer from it are not the Laura Ingrams of the world. I'm sure that Laura Ingram and whoever that man was with her, the man that I do not know, as Bernie says, um, they, I'm sure that they have some nice holiday homes in a variety of places um, that they can, you know, go to with different climates or whatever so that they can, when, when it's too hot, they can go to a place that's a bit cooler. When it's too cold, they can go to, do you know what I mean? Like they have, the rich have mobility, they have resources, they have infrastructure, they have choice. We saw this in the pandemic. When those of us who, you know, live in, in inner cities had to stay and be in the eye of the storm of the pandemic and people who are wealthy were able to leave and go to their second homes and kind of have, you know, where they have an office in their home and they have great Wi-Fi and they're able to go for long walks and, you know, be sort of essentially con continue a their lives in a way that, you know, wasn't so deeply impacted. And so that relaxation comes from the fact that they know that even if it does impact the West in that visceral way, they will be protected comparatively by their wealth and their mobility, which others do not have. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And we, we talked about that recently, we we're talking about AI, which is that lots of this kind of tech bros who are really worried about you know, extinction from AI, which to be fair, I'm also a little bit worried about. I think they're not that fussed about climate change. They're, you know, they don't talk about it that much. And I think that's because they think, well, you know, un unless everyone gets extinct, we're probably going to be the last ones alive. 
you know, <laughs> climate change would have to get really, really bad for Elon Musk to die. But he thinks that it, AI could get to a point where it ex extinguishes everyone. And so that's, a, that's one issue he particularly cares about. Next story. According to experts, the devastating Canadian wildfires that have blanketed New York in smoke were, in part, caused by unusual springtime highs of 33 degrees Celsius. And this weekend, parts of the UK are set to hit highs of 30 degrees. As a result, the UK Health Security Agency issued this heat health alert. And I just want to read you the part about who this is relevant to. So it says, look out for people who might struggle to keep cool. And it goes on to say, older people, people with long-term health conditions and young children may need help keeping cool. Now, all pretty inoffensive stuff, unless, of course, you're a right-wing radio clown. Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer has been really triggered by the heat warnings. She began her segment with this monologue. The absolute terrors that await us this weekend. A plague of locusts? No. Um, forest fires engulfing the nation? No. Floods and deluge? No, no. This isn't the Kherson region in Ukraine. What does await us is, and brace yourselves, folk, have a sit down before I tell you this. In some parts of the country, temperatures may reach 30 degrees Celsius. I know. I'm as horrified and scared, terrified and bewildered as you are. But yeah, a heat alert, heat, heat, a heat alert was issued uh, yesterday by the Met Office uh, that we are a heat wave. It's finally on its way. But why a heat alert? Aren't most of us delighted to be getting the barbecue out at long last? This is what I mean with the sort of yeah, uh, the way the goalpost shifts. She's like 30 degrees. Who cares about 30 degrees? What is that? This isn't uh, a city being covered in smoke. But then you can imagine a city gets covered in smoke and Julie Hartley will say, just close the goddamn window. Who cares about this? You constantly shift the goalposts. Whatever is currently happening isn't really a problem. You talk about something more extreme, the more extreme thing happens, and then you say, well, this isn't something even more extreme. I don't know, I find it disingenuous. Later, um, Julie Hartley Brewer was joined by a guest, weather presenter Claire Nasir. Why is there a heat alert about a temperature, which is the sort of temperature which most of us would pay our hard-earned cash on to get to that sort of temperature in another country on summer holiday. And the Met Office is not saying celebrate the, don't celebrate the sunshine. It's a joint venture, obviously, with um, health professionals to just alert the, the social care system that vulnerable people could actually be impacted by this heat. It's the lowest level of heat. It's a yellow warning. So most healthy people, it's not a problem at all. It's those who have underlying health conditions like heart issues, etc. And can I just remind you that along the eastern side of the country, they've seen temperatures of 13, 14 degrees Celsius. Norwich could see a hike of 20 degrees in the next few days. And that's quite a shock to the system. It's the first time this year we're seeing 30 degrees. Everyone's going to be thrilled. I'm from 13 degrees to 30. Wonderful. Brilliant. Get your shorts and t-shirts on. Pour a glass but of pims. Not everyone like you is so robust, Julia. Some people but don't do those, but, but again, the whole world is being organised around the very frail, the very elderly and the very vulnerable. I just not entirely... Surely they already know that already. I mean, you know, you know there's a marathon on. Oh, you know, let's tell my 80-year-old mum not to run the marathon. You know, we don't issue warnings about things like that. Don't people who are frail or vulnerable, don't they already know? You know, look... I, you know, I've got, I'm of Irish blood, so I can't sit out in the sun. I get burnt to a crisp almost immediately. What's the point? But I know that. Do I need to have a, a heat health alert to tell me that? 
this is not for you. This is for people who work in the health profession and those who are very vulnerable. So you can ignore this completely and go outside, oh really thrive in this beautiful weather. And it's great because your carbon footprint will be very low. And I oh, know God, be- don't start on that nonsense, Claire. Don't start on that nonsense, Claire. Wow. I mean, I think that was so telling about the politics of Julie Hartley Brewer and actually that segment of the right in this country. One, because she's talking about something that's completely irrelevant, right? It's just health. She can ignore the health warning. As the guest was saying, it's not for her. She says, the whole of society is being organized around these vulnerable people. Why is it being... All you have to do is read one small health warning. You don't even have to read that. The only reason anyone really knows about this is because you've made some bizarre, angry segment on your show about it. And the extent to which sort of the right wing are just constantly... If I go on sort of like right-wing TV or right-wing radio, whatever, they always want you to comment on like a tweet that some small borough council has made, which says something about solidarity with black people or maybe, you know, recycle your stuff. And I was like, why are they shoving this down our throat? It's like, it's a tweet. You know, it's, it's one agency saying, if you know someone who's particularly vulnerable to the heat, maybe check that they're okay, right? So how, how is that organizing society around this risk? Dahlia, what's your, can you decode what's going on here? That's a really important observation about how place, you know, institutions like GB News, like Talk TV, what their bread and butter is, you know, their ideological strategy. It's making, it's producing stories. It's like the production of, or the use of like, ultimately insignificant events to contribute to this overall meta-narrative that they are trying to construct. And for me, Julia Hartley Brewer almost said the quiet part out loud there when she said, we're organizing the whole of society around, you know, the marginalized and the vulnerable. First of all, I wish that were true. Nothing could be further from the truth. But what she's trying to do there is using this completely pedestrian, like normal, not like, like, irrelevant thing, which is just public health advice that I'm sure is not nothing out of the ordinary. It's not new. It's very typical, whatever. Taking that and it's she's using it to add to this reservoir of stories and images that essentially is trying to make any kind of infrastructure or allowance or a- access to anyone deemed weaker or more marginalized than her to try and stigmatize that. And so there is a connection between this, what seems like a kind of inoffensive fluff story and this broader culture of organized abandonment and organized neglect of people that we see or that she sees as being less valuable. There's a connection between this and, you know, taking away, you know, disability and social welfare benefits because of this idea that, if you need, if you can't, you know, work 10 hours a day, then you're useless to society and you should be abandoned. All the same logic that leads to refugees and asylum seekers being abandoned on the streets of London or being, you know, forced to kind of to take unsafe routes across the Mediterranean. It's the cultivation of this this meta narrative that somehow, you know, the most vulnerable people, the most marginalized and dispossessed people have won over everyone else. And that actually the morally right or the common sense approach is to allow them to be abandoned. And so in a sense, they when that's your ideology and when that's the ideology you're trying to, to implement and trying to, to normalize, and you're a hammer and everything looks like a nail, even this 
completely irrelevant, non-news story of a public health agency saying, you know, oh, it's kind of getting to a, you know, let's not forget, you know, in Britain, we aren't used to high temperatures. We don't have the infrastructure for it. Our buildings aren't built to be in regular 30 degree, 35 degree. And last year it got to almost 40 degree weather. And so it makes sense that in this country, there would be sort of public health knowledge, public health messaging around that. But taking that non-story and inserting it into that broader meta-narrative, and let's not forget these kinds of outlets, whether it's talk radio, whether it's talk TV, whether it's GB News, it's 24 hours news cycle. So it's just when when the people at home are constantly hearing this meta-narrative being going over and over and over in their head. And so that kind of abandonment of anyone who seemed to be marginalized or seemed to be dispossessed then becomes normalized in a broader sense. In a sense, even though it's a completely bizarre segment to watch, I can understand why Julia Hartley Brewer and her producers um, saw it as worth reporting on, because that's the broader story that they're trying to tell. I suppose why it seems so extreme to me is because, you know, it's, it's very unpleasant when sort of the right are sort of trying to stoke tax revolts. So essentially say all of our tax money is going to support the vulnerable. It's not, by the way, but the argument they're saying is you could have more money in your pocket if we weren't giving so much um, to vulnerable, sick people, old people, unemployed people, whatever. Um, But this is saying, I don't even, it's not I don't want money to be transferred to vulnerable people. It's I don't even want to be reminded of the existence of vulnerable people. Just shut up about the vulnerable. Like, if, if at the end of the weather forecast, they say, if you are old or frail or know someone old and frail, maybe be careful about the weather. That's too much for Julie Hartley Brewer to take. She doesn't want even the, the existence of these people to be recognized because that, that's too much of an imposition on her life. I mean, we can rant about Julie Hartley Brewer all day. Let's, though, talk briefly about the extent to which heat waves in the UK are a problem. I mean, because obviously, I know lots of people will be watching this thinking, you're looking forward to 30 degrees at the weekend. I'm kind of looking forward to 30 degrees at the weekend. But um, we should also consider that these are problems for many people. Every year, there are about 2,000 excess deaths linked to high temperatures in England. I mean, last year's heat waves, where temperatures reached 40 degrees in some parts of the country, excess deaths were over 3,000. Now, most of those were caused by heart attacks and strokes brought on when the body tries to stabilize its temperature. But forget 40 degrees or even 30 degrees, which we'll see this weekend. The risks begin to kick in when temperatures reach between 25 and 26 degrees. As that weather presenter pointed out, the most dangerous times are when the temperature changes over a short period of time, as it has this week. All right, so it's a very, very different state of affairs if it's 30 degrees and you're on holiday in Spain. You're dressed for it, you don't have to work, and you buy the sea, you can cool off. And if you are in this country, you didn't see the weather coming, your body's struggling to deal with it. My body's actually kind of struggling to deal with the heat today, which is, is, is not particularly high if you're looking at it in terms of, I think it might be like 24. I feel like I'm so hot, right? It's because I'm not used to it. But luckily, I'm not old or frail or a very young child, right? So you don't need to worry about me. But if you do have family and friends who are old and frail or, or, or very young or vulnerable in some other way, then maybe it would be a good idea to see if they're okay and not just use the Julia Hartley Brewer excuse, which is to say, well, if they need to look after themselves, they can do it themselves and they must know already. So don't bother me with any concerns about how someone else might be in danger. Next story. Green MP Caroline Lucas has announced she is standing down and won't be contesting her seat at the next general election. Lucas is the Greens' sole MP who was first elected in 2010 and received a majority of 20,000 at the last election. She announced the move in a letter to 
constituents. Lucas explains her time as an MP and the conditions under which she was elected. But perhaps most interesting of all are the reasons she gives for wanting to leave the role. So she says, The intensity of these constituency commitments, together with the particular responsibilities of being my party's sole MP, mean that, ironically, I've not been able to focus as much as I would like on the existential challenges that drive me, the nature and climate emergencies. I have always been a different kind of politician, as those who witnessed my arrest, court case and acquittal over peaceful protest at the fracking site in Balkum nearly 10 years ago will recall. And the truth is, as these threats to our precious planet become ever more urgent, I have struggled to spend the time I want on these accelerating crises. I have therefore decided not to stand again as your MP at the next election. And she goes on, the reason I came into politics was to change things 13 years ago. It's inconceivable that Parliament would have declared a climate emergency. And I've put issues like a universal basic income and a legal right to access nature on the political agenda, secured the first parliamentary debate in a generation on drug law reform. And thanks to my work in Parliament, a natural history GCSE will soon be on the syllabus. I have said the previously unsayable only to see it become part of the mainstream. My determination in trying to make change is stronger than ever. I look forward to having the time to explore ever more imaginative and creative ways of helping to make a livable future a reality. Watch this space. So what has Lucas accomplished in her 13 years in Parliament? Well, she also posted this helpful video on Twitter chronicling her achievements. Caroline Lucas will be heard. Caroline Lucas, we're grateful. With his body language throughout this evening has been so contemptuous of this house sit, and sit of the When he has been lecturing us about democracy, we will have none of it. It does strike me as a certain irony that in this place you can get copies of the sun. Perhaps I could even show you what's in the sun. In order, eight places, order, 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 in eight places in this order, house, you can get order. this magazine. I have received so many messages from constituents who are horrified that water companies are polluting in this revolting way. Will he now cut the crack? Will he commit to strengthening the government's plan and bring our failing system back into public hands where it belongs? Neither patients in Brighton Pavilion nor anywhere else should be paying the price for the failure of private companies who are profiting from NHS contracts. While the heatwave has now been declared a national emergency, there are real questions about how seriously the government is taking it and how prepared they are. They seem to be turning up with a watering can when what we need is a giant fire hose. Brighton, my constituency, is one of the most expensive places to rent outside of London, and my constituents are being ripped off on a daily basis. For the benefit of the House and for 10 and 11-year-olds up and down the country, will the Prime Minister explain what the past progressive tense is? Will he differentiate between a subordinating conjunctive and a coordinating conjunctive? And finally, will he set out his definition, please, of a modal verb? <laughs> History will not judge kindly those who put party politics before this most crucial moment, when it is precisely those with the least who most need their politicians to be brave. The only act of a parliament that is, has some kind of moral integrity is to rip up her illegal and immoral bill, which has no place on our statute book. I agree with the Prime Minister that the sun shines on Brighton, it shines bright green on Brighton Pavilion. So that was Caroline Lucas's team sort of summary of her achievements in Parliament. And the thinking behind her decision to quit as an MP was also made clearer when she spoke to Nick Robinson on this morning's Today programme. 
This is about really just recognizing that for me personally, the thing that really motivates me, what really drives me is action around the climate and nature emergencies. You know, over the course of my lifetime alone, populations of some of our most important wildlife have plummeted by over half. The climate crisis is accelerating. Warnings will crash through that 1.5 degree climate threshold within the next five years. So these are really massive issues. And because I have to be the front bench spokesperson on everything from my party, I'm pulled in so many directions from, from benefits to Brexit. And, and it just means that I can't give the time that I personally want to those big issues around climate and nature. And so I'm definitely not going away. I'm not retiring with my knitting. I am definitely going to be looking at how I can still serve to, to make change happen, but, but perhaps to look at different ways of doing that as well. Robinson went on to ask Lucas about whether she would get involved in more direct action, the subtext presumably being the actions of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. In response, Lucas had this to say. I certainly think there is a, a role for peaceful direct action. And as you, as you say, uh, I, I always have done and I've done it myself. But, but actually, I think right now, the Greens are at such an exciting stage. We've just had the most successful local elections ever. We're the largest party on 10 councils. We're in administration in over 30. And so working to get more Greens elected at the next general election is, is my priority, not just replacing me here in Brighton, but Carla Denyer in Bristol Central, Adrian Ramsey, Mid-Suffolk, Eddie Chowns, North <laughs> yes. Herefordshire. There's I, a, I'm going to be wary of your party political broadcast well, here, Caroline. I, I know you're say, leaving, but you're, one, <laughs> we one don't allow other parties to come on and tell us who to vote for in individual no, let constituencies. Me just say, let yeah. me just say generally that we, we have an amazing next generation Understood. of Greens, and Understood. I just want to say that I'll be doing all I can to get each one of them elected. Understood. Now, it is absolutely beyond doubt that the Greens have seen a massive growth in local elections since 2019. And at the next election, they will be very competitive in several seats outside Brighton, like Bristol West. But was the fear of losing the seat of Brighton Pavilion also a factor in um, this decision? Um, this image from Stats for Lefties shows the vote in recent local elections in Caroline Lucas's constituency, which, it should be said, will see significant changes to its boundaries. Elsewhere, a recent poll by Best for Britain had the Greens losing Brighton Pavilion as a result of boundary changes, although it should be said that Lucas had a massive personal vote and similar polls consistently showed her to be struggling in the past. So these polls have often said the Greens might lose this and then she actually wins with a big majority because people really like Caroline Lucas in Brighton. Still, it is an open question of whether or not having to really struggle to retain her seat was a factor in her decision. Um, Dahlia, the Greens are very much a national party on local councils, but they could have no MPs in Westminster after the next election, right? So uh, we've said here it was possible she would lose that seat. I think probably her personal vote would have meant she would have retained the seat. I think it will be harder for another Green to come and replace her. And so it, it, it's possible that after all of this growth in local elections and this buzz around the Green Party, it could be the case that after 2024, they have no MPs. And I mean, it'd be very difficult to suggest that that's the sign of success. We live in a country that doesn't have, you know, proportional representation. So that means that really for small political parties, for political parties that aren't really the, the big two, um, it's very, very difficult to actually have political impact electorally. What I think we've seen the right have, do have done really well um, is have a party machinery and have a party organizational unit, but look towards building power in a way that doesn't rely on winning elections. 
Nigel Farage and UKIP, you know, never won a single election in, they won European elections, but not in Britain. Um, they tried very hard. They put a lot of resources in it, in it. They never actually won any elections. And yet they are arguably one of the most impactful political forces um, in this century um, in Britain. You know, they've completely changed, they completely changed the terrain of British politics. They won a vote that is, they won possibly the most important vote, um, even though they didn't have a single MP and were far less electorally successful um, than the Green Party. And so I actually think that when you don't have a proportional representation system, you really, I don't think that it makes sense for smaller parties to throw all their weight or to have their 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 um, theory of change or their theory of power to be based on winning particularly, you know, national MP-based elections. So I don't think that this necessarily means that the Green Party are reducing in their power if we think about power in a more expansive way. For me, what will determine whether or not the Green Party are able to actually gain power and to, to be quote unquote successful is whether or not they are able to adapt their organizational form um, in order to find it find that route to power in another way. Obviously, you know, UKIP, Nigel Farage, etc., they had the fact that the weight of the tabloid media, while not directly endorsing him, was certainly willing to tacitly back up the vast majority, you know, his the way that he views the world, the way that UKIP um, portrays the world. And so in that sense, they have a lot of ideological backing from very powerful institutions. The Green Party don't have that. But what the Corbyn moment showed um, was that even if you don't have the weight of the right the right wing press, if you have a good ground game, if you have, you know, uh, good relationships with grassroots media, a use of social media, you can, to an extent, build an alternative vision of power. And obviously, the people that were engaged by that project have been dispossessed by it, by the Labour Party. And so there is a real opening to adapt the theory of power, the theory of change, to really lock into this moment where more and more people are being engaged in politics in interesting and exciting ways, whether that's grassroots direct action, whether it's, you know, having different you know, we saw all those people coming out in the streets to canvas for for the Labour Party. There are ways you can put that energy into quite useful and beneficial and productive ways. I think what worries me is that you know the judgment of the Green Party. And I don't know. I don't know exactly how factionalism within the Green Party works, but at some point in the past sort of five years, the judgment of where to place energy has been a bit off. You know, for example, the fact that we had, you know, in the 2019 election when the possibility of a truly progressive Green New Deal was on the table, the Green Party decided to contribute to the idea that this was a Brexit election and throw all of their weight behind, you know, an anti-Brexit vote. That to me was odd political judgment and was out of step with the streets. The fact that I haven't seen them meet the energy of the people who have been dispossessed by the Labour Party um, that to me is more indicative of perhaps a lack of good political judgment. But in terms of Caroline Lucas, you know, or them not having an MP in Parliament, I don't think there's. I think we know now from, you know, the way that UKIP rose to power, etc., that you don't need to win elections in order to influence politics in this part in this country. And in fact, in a non-PR system, 
that like resting your kind of theory of power on winning elections is kind of nonsensical. I disagree somewhat. I mean, I, I think that the influence of the Green Party has been greatly sort of increased by the fact that they have an MP in Westminster. So I wouldn't sort of underplay the significance of of, of elections. And I mean, I agree with you on you with, with UKIP, but UKIP have had a slightly different strategy. So what they did was they had one big name. They chose their wedge issue, which was obviously the referendum. And then they made the Tories terrified that they would lose a bunch of seats so that they had to concede to them on their one single wedge issue, which was the referendum. The Greens seem to have taken a slightly different strategy. I talked about this with Aaron on a recent show, which is essentially not to choose a wedge issue and not to, you know, say we're going to throw the election. They've actually seemed to more have sort of systematically chosen a few places where they can build up a base precisely to get people um, elected into parliament or elected onto onto council so that you that they sort of build up a bigger presence. Given that, it does seem to me risky. So if, if what they want to do is, you know, within 10 or 20 years have free MPs, it seems risky for one of their MPs to stand down before they have another one. Now, you know, I suppose Caroline Lucas is thinking, I mean, to be honest, I imagine it's probably a personal decision, which I totally respect. Like, I, w- I wouldn't want to be an MP for 13 years, frankly, right? So so there's maybe a personal decision. Uh, the upside, I suppose, the you know, the best case scenario for the Greens is that Brighton Pavilion is so committed to green politics that they will elect a green successor and then you will have a new generation of green politicians, one of them in parliament. That's very plausible, um, but it's high risk because that person will obviously have less of a personal vote than Caroline Lucas did. And if if their strategy was this sort of slow game of building up a presence in parliament and on local councils instead of, you know, trying to outflank the Labour Party and forcing them to take on their policies at, at risk of them throwing the election, which is what UKIP did. UKIP said, Tories, you have to take on our policies or you're going to lose the next election because we're going to throw a load of seats where your people that would have voted for you vote for us instead and Labour get through the middle. The Greens, for obvious reasons, don't seem to be comfortable making that threat against the Labour Party. So they've played the slow game. And if you're playing the slow game, resigning before you have a different MP seems a little bit odd to me. Um, but Dali, you disagree? I'll give you the final word on this. Yeah, I mean, I can see what you mean by that strategy. I just think that that strategy is really, really, really hard in the political system that we have. Um, And I think that the Greens should feel no way about threatening, especially this iteration of the Labour Party. I think they should feel no way about um, doing that. I think, you know, the Labour Party in, in its current state is a reactionary force and particularly in the context, even though on climate, they're relatively better than they are on other things. Still, you know, it is a, a they see themselves as a tool to blunt the growth of social movements and, and progressive change in this country. So, I yeah, I, I see what you mean by like the, the I, there, there's a cohesion to the strategy of, you know, slowly kind of building power. I just think that it's, it's a much tougher mountain to climb, given the political system that we have. You know, I'm not sure if three MPs would have more impact than, you know, a generalized kind of like shift using wedge issues that can target kind of lots of different Labour MPs and one, you know, across a wide a wide geographical area and in lots of different constituencies to take on the policies, which ultimately is what is really important. All right, let's wrap up there. Um, you can, you've got a little bit of time to get the end of the sun this evening. Um, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you everyone for watching tonight. I'll be back again tomorrow at 6pm. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. 
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.